I said last week that the reformer Martin Luther wrote two commentaries on the book of Zechariah. Um, one in Latin and one in German. I don't know which one, but one of them ended at the end of chapter 13. He said nothing about Zechariah chapter 14. The other one, probably the German one, he wrote, I don't have any idea what he's talking about in chapter 14. That's what Martin Luther wrote. So this is what I aim to present to you. Nerves, shaking, present to you what Martin Luther had no idea what they're trying to say. But we've had 500 years to study it since then, so I'm standing on the shoulders of others. So I want to start with a brief review, uh, just catch you up uh, where, we, where we were, and make a few comments about chapter 6, very few comments about some of the other chapters, and really get to chapter 14. So, okay. We studied the night visions, remember, the night visions from chapters uh, 1 to uh, 6, the eight night visions, and the theme was to lift up the eyes of the people to dreams, dreams and visions of good things, of, for example, peace, justice, God's own presence in the city, how sinners would be cleansed and be given the righteousness of uh, Christ and uh, victory. So they began to wonder, how could these things actually take place? Who could bring this about? If you start to ask the question, who, right, you think beyond um, what you've had in the past. So they look to, is it perhaps this priest that's been mentioned, this priest Joshua? Or is it perhaps this uh, local governor, Zerubbabel? Remember, there's a 17-mile square area around Jerusalem, and they had set a governor over that named Zerubbabel, and he was from the line of David, so maybe it's him. Should we look to Joshua the priest, or should we look to Zerubbabel from the line of David, who is the governor, or will it be someone else? Is there someone yet to come? Uh, what if one person combined both the role of priest and the role of king, all rolled up into one person? Hmm. So Zechariah's prophecies were verbally delivered over the course of a three-year time span, a little over three years. It happened about 17 years after the first group of returnees from Babylon arrived back in Jerusalem. I'm reviewing, hopefully you understand and remember these things, just catching us up to speed. They worked to rebuild the temple, but it had stopped. So God sent both Haggai, who we studied last time, and now Zechariah we're studying now, to both prophesy in order to motivate the people to get going to actually rebuild the temple. Haggai more focused on the actual construction with stone and wood. Zechariah more involved in getting the hearts of the people ready to worship God once the temple is finished. Um, so um, the, the focus of Zechariah was aimed more at the people who, who had not yet committed themselves to participate in the rebuilding project. So he wanted to get them to join the team to restore the worship of God. Remember, for example, in Zechariah 1 verse 3, how Zechariah began his message, basically, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Return to me, I'll return to you. So there they stand with the rubble surrounding them in Jerusalem that they've been working on. Their homes, their fields, the temple, rubble, reminding them of their evidence of their need to turn to God. So their fathers and forefathers had sinned so bad against God that the whole city had been destroyed, they had been taken off into exile. That's a huge chastisement, right? So there's a huge need to turn back to God. So the message of Zechariah comes to the people, and they are aware of it, they're responsive to it, 
you could say they actually had very fast and very good results to Jeremiah's preaching. In fact, this is what Ezra wrote about it. Um, Ezra, um, I don't have the reference down. I think it's chapter 5. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel, by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And you can compare that to Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. It was the second year of Darius the king. So you have about a three, a little longer than a three-year window there that they actually completed the building of the temple. So just reminders of chapters 1 through 6 provided these eight visions that God gave to the returnees through Zechariah. The visions were meant to encourage them. It was meant to show them that they can and should get going on rebuilding the temple. They had returned back from Babylon to Jerusalem. They had problems with the rebuilding. They had fears about the enemy nations coming to destroy it all again, perhaps. Questions about whether God himself would join them in Jerusalem with his own presence. If you remember, that was one of our main themes last week. The presence of God, the presence of God. Could you set up your whole Valentine dinner but not have your love come? Could they set up the whole temple and not have what they really wanted was God's presence there? Right, so God comforted them by giving them these eight visions of his return. His return to fulfill his promises of a glorious new age. And that's what we focused on today, that glorious new age. So by the time we reach chapter 9... The temple building is complete. I want you to understand that. Uh, I'll still make a few comments about 6, 7, and 8, but 9 through 14, the temple is complete. So the prophet turns his attention to matters of the whole country, not just the local people in the, you know, the 17 square mile area. And he also turns attention to the world at large and to the future, like the gigantic future future. Um, so he changes from addressing the immediate concerns of the temple project to... Chapters 9 through 14 will be the concern of God's relationship with the world as a whole. So first I want to make some comments in chapter 6 and uh, see, see how that kind of rolls out. I think it's important before we move to the, uh, chapters 9 to 14. If, you'll, um, if you'd like to turn there, chapter 6, verse 13, um, the man in the previous verse who's mentioned is called the branch, chapter 6, verse 12. So when we get to verse 13, what is it about this branch person? Here we go. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. A priest on a throne. Isn't a throne for a king? A throne is for a king and yet we have a priest on the throne. So we're already trying to mesh a priestly role with a kingly role. Okay. So who is this? And I would say to you, the way to interpret the Bible is you have to have the original audience in mind. Who would the original audience that Zechariah is speaking to and then is reading his book have in mind? There has to be someone local, someone there first. Yes, of course, there's always going to be a secondary fulfillment in Jesus. But who's their first idea, their first fulfillment of this? Who would they see the reference to be this branch? They might see the local priest named Joshua in verse 11. See, are you still there in chapter 6? Look at verse 11. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Wait, who gets a crown? 
I'm going to ask little boys and girls, who gets a crown, a priest or a king? King, right? Why are we putting a crown, a gold crown, on a priest and this priest named Joshua? Do you see how this is unfolding in a local way, what the original audience would see around them? Right? It was Joshua who had come home from Babylon to Jerusalem in the first wave of returnees. It was Joshua who helped the local governor, Zerubbabel, to lead the people of God to rebuild. So it was Joshua who's honored by these words of Zechariah here. So in verse 13, chapter 6, verse 13, where we are, Joshua shall bear royal honor. Again, the word royal for a priest. He's meshing king and priest. And number two, he will sit and rule on his throne. So remember from verse 11, he'll wear a crown on his head. No other Old Testament priest wore crowns. This is new. No other Old Testament priests acted like kings in these ways. In fact, it was forbidden by God for priests to act like kings. But what do you know about the name Joshua? The name Joshua means God saves. And you fast forward to Matthew 1.21, we know the name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. So the name Joshua is meant to connect us to Jesus because it's the same name as Jesus. The prophecy about Joshua here is bursting with second fulfillment and additional meaning in Jesus, the coming Messiah. So when Jesus is a priest, why is Jesus allowed to act as a king? Why is there already here a meshing of priest and king when that wasn't allowed by God? Because it's a prediction of, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus, and because Jesus was always a king and then became a priest. Revelation 17, 14, he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And Jesus became a priest, as we know from Hebrews 6, 20, having become a high priest forever. So then after Jesus rose again, 40 days later, he visibly went up from the ground to the sky into the heavens, what we call the ascension. And that act is both a royal coronation as a king and a consummation of his self-sacrifice as both the priest and the offering. He has power over all his enemies, like a king does, but he also completes his atoning work as priest for the people when he goes to heaven to advocate for us at the right hand of the Father. So he can establish our peace as king, and he also can establish our cleansing as priest. So how both high priest and king work are mingled together in the description of Christ in Hebrews 10, 12. Listen to to Balchuk on a signal with one hand or the other, priest or king, right? When Christ had offered, priestly work, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Seems like a kingly role, right? Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's kingly. For by a single offering, that's priestly, he had perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14. So the two come together in Christ. Um, the coronation of the priest Joshua as a king here in, in Zechariah 6, 13 is a symbolic promise looking ahead to the coronation of the branch in the future who turned out to, turned out to be Jesus. The local first audience is looking to Joshua the priest. But beyond Joshua the priest, of course, is Jesus. Um, yeah, so Jeremiah mentioned it. Jeremiah 23.5 mentions the branch. Isaiah 11.1 1 mentions the branch. Uh, Psalm 110 has both kingly elements and priestly elements. Um, we can say about Joshua that he will build the temple. We can also say about Jesus that he'll build the temple. In fact, Jesus said it about himself, Matthew 16.18, I will build my church. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.21, the church is the holy temple of the Lord. So this local man, Joshua, had a temporary role of honor 
But of course, Jesus is the one who receives honor and glory forever and ever. Jesus himself taught in Luke 24, 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he knows it's written about him, that he is that priest and king together. So I just want to draw that one piece out from chapter 6. Here's your mention of chapter 7 and 8, and then we've got to move on to 9 through 14. The only thing I'll say about chapter 7 and 8 is there's a contrast between the circumstances of the people in the days of Zechariah and the future later. Note chapter 8, verse 6, it says, in those days. And again, chapter 8, verse 23, in those days. So their application locally was to look ahead to something that God will do later. Uh, and looking ahead to the incredible future that he's about to describe in chapters 9 through 14, God will dwell in the midst of his people. That's what they always wanted, the presence of God, God dwelling there. And God will bless them, and God will even gather people from each of the nations to come to Jerusalem to worship him and bless him. So that's kind of the vision of what Zechariah is preaching in chapter 7 and 8. All right, so we're just doing an overview, so that's sufficient for 7 and 8. Let me make some comments as a whole about 9 through 14, and at the right moment, I will jump to chapter 14 so we can cover that thoroughly. All right, so the theme of chapters 9 through 14 is restoration. Remember our theme all across all the minor prophets, three words, judgment unto restoration. So we've had judgment, we've had God move now, transition in chapters 9 to 14 to restoration. Chapters 1 to 8, many promises of God were fulfilled, judging the nations to protect his people. For example, uh, chapters 1 through 8 showed a return from exile. And it used language of a new exodus, like the people came out of Egypt, the exodus in Moses. Also, the people came out of captivity in Babylon. Uh, It's that kind of language, brought up out of the house of slavery, brought up out of the house of captivity. The similarity is there. In chapters 1 to 8, a new redemptive action of God is happening. But now, chapters 9 through 14 show a yet fuller fulfillment is ahead. We had the exodus. Now we had the bringing back from exile and captivity. There's something else even bigger coming. Even bigger than the classic redemptive action of God, part the Red Sea and bring God's people home. Even bigger than the action of God, bring the people back from captivity and bring them home. There's something else, a bigger activity of God in which he will bring his people home. That's to be imagined. That's to be prophesied about. That's what chapters 9 through 14 point us to. Way future. Okay? Principial. The, the guy waxes philosophical on us. That's where we're going in chapters 9 to 14. So this return from exile that just was taught about was provisional and inaugural in comparison to what's now being described. God's going to provide more restoration. I actually imagine making a t-shirt that says, more restoration, and pull out my t-shirt. But I'm not Superman, and that would be too corny. So more restoration is the point, okay? Trying to get that impression so that the rest of our class remember we're talking about future, more restoration. Coming back home from Babylon was awesome, but it was a token and a taste of what's coming. Wait till you see the greater restoration coming. All right, so the organization of chapters 9 to 14 is basically two oracles, two statements from God. Chapter 9-1 to chapter 11-17, 9 through 11, one oracle. Then we shift gears again in chapters 12 through 14 as a second oracle, pretty simple, two oracles. The first oracle 
chapters 9 to 11, uses words and vocabulary from Israel's history to talk about Israel's future. For example, as I was just mentioning, think back to the Exodus, the original Exodus from Egypt. Language from there is now borrowed to refer to the return from captivity to Babylon as if it were another Exodus, a new Exodus, a second Exodus. What's fascinating, I hope you catch this, geographically, the listeners to Zechariah had returned home from Babylon. They were now in Jerusalem, geographically. You with me? Spiritually, theologically, they were still awaiting a spiritual second exodus, a spiritual second exile. So he's using imagery that might confuse us if we don't remember where they are. Um, in a poetic expression of language, the first oracle presented God subduing enemies and their kings and also God saving, restoring his covenant blessings in which a remnant of, even from the nations will share. So they had returned from Babylon. Just keep that in mind. So the structure of chapter 9, you have verses 1 through 8, the restored land. Verses 9 and 10, the restored king. Verses 11 to 17, the restored people. So those coming future times of fuller redemption were started off by language about this coming messianic king who would make a humble appearance, bringing righteousness and salvation to Jerusalem. Hint, hint, you can spot him because he'll ride on a donkey, right? I mean, to them, it's like, huh, what? Okay, I guess we'll watch for that. And to us, it's like, we get it every year on Palm Sunday. This is drilled into us since we were little, right? You had how many cartoon pictures of the, the donkey, and they're not supposed to draw pictures of Jesus. So what picture they come across with, right? Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. These are people who came home from Babylon, came home to Jerusalem. It's all rubble. It's all a mess. They have problem after problem. They can't rebuild the temple. They can't rebuild their homes. Everything's stalled. Haggai says, get going. Zechariah says, prepare your hearts. And they're like, we just want David. <laughs> Please give us a David. We will follow him. We will serve him. We just like, set up some safety from our enemies. This whole thing could happen all over again. They're powerfully discouraged. And Zechariah is saying, wait till you see him come. He's going to come in on a little donkey. He's the answer. Right? It was skipped forward to Matthew 21.5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, quote, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Obviously, that's the main thing to see in Zechariah 9. Zechariah 10 and 11 are about leadership. They have problems with their leadership. Is Joshua, the high priest, our go-to guy? Is he going to lead us through this? Is Zerubbabel, the local governor, set up by the Persian government for us, going to be sufficient for us? What about our bad prophets? What about our good prophets? Bad priests, good priests, bad um, kings, good kings. Where are we with leadership? So the structure of chapter 10, first verses 1 to 5, God's blessings, but God's anger against leaders who aren't doing right, and God's care for his flock. Then verses 6 through 12, God's strengthening of his people because of God's compassion to his people, regardless of the bad leaders. Previously, they were scattered among the nations, but God will bring them home. His people will pass through a sea of troubles. Find that quote in chapter 10. And he will make them strong 
and they shall walk in God's name. So beautiful phrases like this of what they can apply to themselves a little bit sort of locally, but it's better, it's thought of as a future. It's for them to imagine. Like we're always being pointed ahead, Jesus' second coming, the beauties of heaven, that's what gives us hope. For them, they're looking ahead to Jesus' first coming. He will finally one day come. We'll walk in his name. He'll make us strong. We'll pass through our sea of troubles. All these things are for Old Testament believers to anticipate Christ's first coming, um, everything that we see in Christ's teaching, miracles, death, resurrection, ascension, sending a spirit. These are anticipatory for them. It's continued into chapter 11 about the leadership of God's people. We have, if you're looking at your handout, the rejected shepherd, chapter 11. The structure of chapter 11 is the first three verses are a call to lament when the leaders are not Jesus. Every leader that you find has failed because every leader is not Jesus. The Old Testament office is to fail. Every priest failed. Every king failed. Every prophet failed. Every judge failed. Fail, fail, fail. So lament that because they're not Jesus. It has to be Jesus. So they all point ahead to him. So verses 1 to 3 are lamenting. Then verses 4 through 17 in chapter 11 talk about the past history of Israel with regard to its leaders and the image of a shepherd and a sheep. The sheep are always getting lost. The sheep are always getting harmed because the shepherds always mess up, right? But God is our true shepherd. So look beyond the local leader. Look beyond this century. Look beyond the entire Old Testament office. We have a true shepherd. We have a true king. We have a true priest. We have a true prophet. Look, all the past history of Israel, all you see is fail, fail, fail of the humans. All you see is faithful, faithful, faithful on the part of God. So then verses 15 to 17, the last part of chapter 11, he talks about how God relates to the worthless shepherd and his response to him, that God does not let that all go. That God deals with his people, God deals with worthless shepherds, worthless prophets, worthless priests, and so on. So Zechariah presented the coming Messiah, the true shepherd, as one who ironically would be pierced. As soon as he used the word pierced, you New Testament Christians, right, know exactly where that goes. Straight to the cross where he's pierced, right? He's betrayed and pierced. That's how he's presented here. I'll just read Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, Lord, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Sorry, that was not the pierced passage. I wrote those on your handout if you want to look those up. Zechariah, uh, wait, I'll read some of those in a moment because it's chapter 12. So let me read the, the New Testament connection to the silver, Matthew 26, 14, and 15. Uh, one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Listen to this, Matthew 27, 9 to 10. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, and the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave him for the potter's field, as the Lord had directed me. So Jeremiah gets the credit, but Zechariah also prophesied it. Right, right there. They, they echo each other. Now the pierced one. I mentioned the pierced one. So chapters 12 and 13, a brief review now, and then I've really got to get to chapter 14. The structure of chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, the nations attacked Jerusalem. The nations attack Jerusalem and God's response. 
Then chapters uh, 12, verses 10 through 14, the people who have pierced the Lord's representative will mourn for him and grieve him. It's the king who will subdue the nations. I'll read Zechariah 12, 8 and 9. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then I'll read verse 10. This is the part where he's pierced. Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I'll pour out on the house of David on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on, him, on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Zechariah 12.10. Where is that reference in the New Testament? John 19.34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And John 19.37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That's a direct quote from Zechariah. Then the structure of chapter 13, verse 1, on that day the people who pierced him will themselves be cleansed in the fountain opened for them. Direct connection to the piercing of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and the cleansing of, of sinners. A fountain opened for them. That was even on our quiz, right? To introduce us to that concept of the fountain. Verses 2 through 6 of chapter 13, on that day idols and false prophecy will be removed. Verses 7 through 9, of chapter 13, this is a familiar phrase to you also, that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep are scattered. There's severe purifying, severe purging, and covenant promises of God being reaffirmed and uh, fulfilled to encourage God's people. So Zechariah presents the coming of the Messiah, the one who would be a shepherd king, as one who is also a wounded shepherd. It's backwards to what we ever think of a shepherd to do, down through human history. The shepherd always protects the sheep, right, by getting rid of, of the stray um, animals out there. But instead, the shepherd will himself be wounded so that the sheep can be safe. Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I'll turn my hand against the little ones. And this is Matthew 26, 31. Jesus himself said, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So all these things fulfilled in Jesus. I wish you know, we, we could take time to do each of those, but the whole goal of this course is an overview. So what I really want to do is take one example and roll it all the way out. You ready? Let's go to chapter 14. We're right on time. I want to do this at 10 o'clock. So we got uh, 15, 20 minutes to do this. Let's look at the structure of chapter 14 See how it points to Christ, see how it applies to us, kind of the main um, application of the whole rolling together of all of Zechariah. This is like the summary chapters, his, his um, drawing together all the themes. So if the structure of chapter 14 is, is a similar half-diamond shape, what we call a chiastic structure, so you have top and bottom that look similar, and then the next level, the next level, and what's in... in um, the middle is the emphasized part. So what's in the middle is chapter 14, verses 6 through 9. The best condition is when the Lord is king. Stop looking for a human king. Stop looking for a human leader. Stop looking for a human shepherd, a human priest, a human prophet. The Lord is the answer. The best condition is the Lord himself. Look to the Lord. 
Lift up your eyes and look to the Lord. Right? So that's the emphasis. Now backing up with the structure, verses 1 to 3, you have the judgment and Lord's intervention. That matches chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. More judgment, and again the Lord's intervention. Then chapters 4 and 5, the next level, I'm sorry, verses 4 and 5, talk about geographical upheavals, and that matches verses 10 and 11. More geographic upheavals. And then as I said in the center, the emphasized part is the best conditions are when the Lord is king. Now there's more verses to go that were not part of that chaotic structure. Verses 16 to 19, let's talk about the prophecy that the nations will go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. All nations will stream to Jerusalem, but instead of attacking it, they'll come in order to worship God there. It's a great transformation from God judging the nations to the nations coming, but instead of the nations coming to attack God's people in Jerusalem, the nations come in order to get God's blessings on them and to worship him. Then the last two verses, I have got to cover this today. Um, it's <clears throat> the cleansing of Jerusalem, resulting in the extreme holiness of the whole city of Jerusalem. Not just the holy temple, but the whole city becomes holy. All right, so that's the structure. Now let me talk about chapter 14. I uh, wound myself up. I'm going to let myself go here now. So the, the final chapter of Zechariah is rich and very encouraging to us. why I focus on it. It picks up themes from all across the other chapters. I tried to mention some of them. It all comes together here. And it works together for a powerful description of a day. One day is coming. It's, you think of it as the last day, the end of the world, the day of judgment, the day of salvation, the day of rescue, the day when the Jesus finally comes, right? Everything will be renewed everything will set, be set right again. So the more you understand this chapter, you could read it every morning as to start you off right, right? There's some of the themes from the whole book that are mixed in here. Um, Day of the Lord, it's prominent. The Davidic king, like whoever comes is going to be just like David in some ways, just like Moses in some ways, right? So it, it's a bringing together of the priestly role from Aaron, the prophetic role from Moses, the, the kingly role from David are all rolled up, right? He's also the divine warrior. He is God, and he's also fighting. So the divine warrior theme, which is shocking to even think and say to our sensibilities, but it's filled with um, uh, truth from Scripture, the divine warrior. There's judgment of the nations, which is part of when you think the end of the world. Everybody faces God, their maker, right, and gets their judgment. It leads to the salvation of God's people from all nations, and the streaming waters that we'll mention, the waters of renewal, and the restoration of Jerusalem's fortunes, God's defense of his own royal city, are all presented here in chapter 14. The, the chapter is presented with various smaller units, so we'll take each unit as we go through. So the first one is a description of a last battle. You think, if you're a fan of uh, C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll, you'll see where he got some of his themes, even titles of some of the books, The Last Battle. So Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 says, a day is coming. Whoa, does that sound ominous when you, when you say a day is coming? But for us who are believers, we're longing for the setting of everything right. We're kind of tired of living in a messy world, and we would love for Jesus to come quickly. Right? So the day is coming. Thank you. Please, yes, hurry up with the day of coming. Um, but it's both. It's a day of judgment and a day of rescue salvation. Then chapter uh, 14, verse 2. Listen to this. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. 
Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. So I'll stop there because we're going to pick up the rest in a moment. So the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, you may remember, you need to know, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament always connotated holy war. Holy war. That the prophets then take that concept of holy war and they use it to refer now to a distant future. The cosmic victory of God that will happen is what Zechariah is talking about. The day of the Lord is when the Lord conducts holy war uh, to prevent... Um, the evil from taking over, a pure event of war is when God himself, the holy God, will rise against his enemies, the battle will be his, the victory will be his, the results will be his. So on that day is a phrase that's repeatedly used across this chapter. Don't write in the church Bibles, but if you have your own Bible, you'll see it so clearly if you underscore on that day. It's purposely used throughout the chapter to tell us these markers. This first section... On that day is the idea of this battle used to refer to that long-awaited day when the Lord himself would intervene to fight for his people and judge the nations. Cataclysmic intervention is what's in view in verses 1 to 5. It's, it's loaded with war words. Spoil, divided, battle, plundered, exile, cut off, fight. So it all starts when God gathers the nations to fight against Jerusalem. Isn't that surprising, verse 2? Because it's the opposite of chapter 12 when the nations were gathering against Jerusalem, but God defended Jerusalem. How do we get a bigger shift than God was defending Jerusalem, and now God's going to turn against Jerusalem? What? What? If, if God is defending Jerusalem in chapter 12, the city's safe. Can I get an amen? I mean, if God's defending Jerusalem, it's safe. A wall of fire we studied last week. But if God's attacking Jerusalem in chapter 14, Jerusalem's a goner. Right, They're destroyed. It's no longer the nations gathering against Jerusalem on their own initiative, but it is God who's bringing the nations against Jerusalem. And what will be the result? Verse 2, city captured, houses plundered, women raped, half the city go into exile. This is the inescapable action by God, and we must have a view of God that accounts for this. I think we just... um, Take God and make him too gentle like a giant grandpa in the sky. The Bible's filled with language of God at, at war. You have to have a theology of God, an understanding of God that accounts for this sort of action. When the day of the Lord arrives, the Lord brings judgment on his city for its sins. The judgment is severe and it's described here in graphic terms, you must admit. So what we have to remember about our God in moments as we walk through world history in our own lives, is what we learned all along in the study of the Minor Prophets. Judgment unto what class? Restoration. Judgment unto restoration. So he's a God of judgment. Start with that. He comes in judgment. The day of the Lord will have judgment. It's the day of judgment. It's what we talk about, the end of the world. But the ultimate intent of our warrior God is not to obliterate his city. It's not to destroy his people. It's to purge it and refine us for his own glory. Now notice verse 4. Verse 4, what will happen after the battle? Verse 4, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward, 
and the other half southward, verse 5, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Listen to this. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. What is happening? What does this mean? Right? After the battle, God plants his feet on the mount. It will split in half from east to west, forming a large valley in the middle. Half the mountain moves northward, half the mountain moves southward, providing what? An easy pathway on which his people can walk. What does that sound like? He takes his people out of Egypt, parting what? The sea, so that they can walk on what? A pathway of dry land. I think of it as a giant hallway, because the water's here, right? He could split the Red Sea. He could split a mountain. That's what he's doing here. If he can split the Red Sea to take them out of Egypt, he can split a mountain to take his people safely out. Um, That's meant to remind us of that. He could part a mountain to give his people easy pathway. There's two uses for the pathway. Number one, the escape route for God's people. Come on home. Number two, what? I just read it to you. End of verse five. Then the Lord my God will come. He uses the pathway to come and be with his people, the presence of God. He's going to join you there. A victory parade. Come on home and I'll, I'll be there with you. Next is verses 6 through 11. Notice it begins with the three words. What are our three key words? On that day, right? So the battle scene is now interrupted to show where this is all going. And what will the end result be? Because the Lord will return and win a victory, what will it be like in Jerusalem then? It will be so different, so new, so beautiful, something we've never seen before, literally. A disruption of the normal cycles of day and night that have been happening, you know, remind you, since the creation of the world? That's rather significant, a disruption of day and night. Listen to verses 6 and 7. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. Remember what God promised to Noah? Genesis 8.22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, Day and night shall not cease, Genesis 8.22. So which is it, God? Well, this is the end. We're talking about the end. So that promise is now expired. So God claims this battle will result in a continuous daytime to declare this vision has brought about the long-awaited goal of all of human history. Can I say it plainly to you? The end of the world. So, promise to Noah was fulfilled until the very end of the world. No more seed time and harvest. No more cold and heat. No more normal summer and winter. No more normal day and night. All will be transformed by God at the end of the world to something new. And when that day arrives, the promise of Noah will no longer need to be in effect since all things will be purified and renewed. Floodwaters of destruction replaced by living waters of life. Verse 8, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. You can compare that to Ezekiel 47, his vision of, you know how the water comes out from the temple? It only comes out in the east. Here, it comes out east and west. It's the blessing of God flowing, not just one season, not just one direction, everywhere and all year long. It's the end, and it's beauty, and it's, right? He's pointing us to something Hope engendering. Something about this is how it will be with the arrival of God on that day. 
Rivers of blessing flowing from God. His temple, his city, east, west, without ceasing, blessing all nations. Verse 9, the Lord will defeat all evil, become the unchallenged king. Listen to this. This one for your mirror. This one for your fridge. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. God will be recognized universally as the only true God. His name will be revered as the only true name. Verses 10 and 11, the city of Jerusalem restored to the way it was before the exile, before the disaster. The promise at the end of verse 11 is that there will never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in safety forevermore. No more flood. No more uh, slavery to Egypt. No more slavery to Babylon. No more Persians coming in. Safe always forever. Verses 12 to 15, before God will transform the nations, he has to judge the nations. It's a ghastly scene. I'm not even going to read it out loud right now, not out of shame, but out of time. But you can glance your eyes over it, right? They're disintegrating. The soldiers are disintegrating right in front of the, of the battle, followed by panic, turning to attack each other, the wealth of the surrounding nations being plundered. Verses 16 to 19, there are survivors among the nations, just as there were survivors in the judgment on Jerusalem. The survivors become what? Worshippers. What a transition. They were fighting against, now they're worshiping God. Instead of enemy soldiers coming to attack Jerusalem, they're coming to Jerusalem to worship God. They'll celebrate what? The Feast of Booths is mentioned twice here. That's the celebration of God's redemptive works of the exodus from Egypt. Return from exile becomes another iteration of God working to save his people from something big. He saves them from slavery in Egypt. He saves them from captivity in Babylon. He saves and he saves and he saves. He's going to do it again. He's going to do it bigger. More restoration. Look ahead to the end of the world. Final battle. God will destroy all evil everywhere. Transform his people from all nations into worshipers. Which brings us to verses 20 and 21. How does Zechariah end this puppy? <laughs> How do you land this plane, Zechariah? You got us flying good. The holiness of God is seen everywhere. The bells of the horses, what does that have to do with anything? Because the bells of the horses are the most mundane you can think of, right? Holy to the Lord, written on the bells of the horses. That exact phrase in Exodus 28, 36 and 37, is to be written on the headpiece of priests alone when they go in once a year to the holy place. But now, everyday horses, everyday bells, the ordinary things would be considered as holy as the garments on the high priest who goes into the presence of God. The horses themselves, you didn't even think that? Previously used only for battle, now used to transport and display God's holy objects. The bells say holy to the Lord as they're ringing. It would be like a tank today using in a, in a parade to display a banner that says peace. <laughs> it's surprising. Verse 20 went on to talk about every cooking pot in the temple being as holy as the basins in the temple itself. The most common pot becomes holy. What's that all about? Why is that significant? Why is that the climax of his chapter? Because verse 21 shows, if anyone anywhere has a heart to worship God, and you're finally ready to worship God with a sacrifice to properly offer him out of true conviction for your own sins, Every pot that's near you is ready. The whole city is ready for you to worship God and to bring him sacrifices that are due him. The holy God will receive worship from sinners. Every pot is made holy and ready for you. 
God is more than ready to receive the long-awaited worship from his worshipers. Verse 21 ends by saying, There will no longer be a traitor in the house of God. No one following some ungodly or unholy path will take the joy out of offering our worship to God. So Zechariah 14 shows a picture of God defending his city from attacking enemies. It shows God coming from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem with his holy people. This chapter shows a new time in which God's enemies are conquered, normal mundane things become holy to God, and the New Testament, we see this fulfilled in Jesus. So I'd like to quickly do, it's up to you if you turn to Mark 11 to follow with me, a comparison of Zechariah 14 and Mark 11. Real quick, three points compared to Jesus. Number one, Jesus began at the Mount of Olives. We saw it here in verse 4. His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And here's Mark 11.1. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Mark writes, so Jesus' entrance begins at the Mount of Olives. Point number two, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, his disciples came also. Remember here in verse 5, the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Now Mark 11.1. Jesus sent two of his disciples, remember, to retrieve the colt that was tied there, Palm Sunday stuff. Number three, Jesus cleansed the temple by driving out the money changers. It was here in verse 21, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Not traitor like someone turning against, traitor like money changers, like salesmen, businessmen, right? Mark 11:15. they came to Jerusalem and he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. My point is this. When Mark organized chapter 11, he patterned it after Zechariah 14 because he could see it's all fulfilled in Jesus, right? The Palm Sunday passage we call the triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem seems so clear that Mark himself is showing us it's a fulfillment of Zechariah 14. He's the divine warrior who, in entering the whole city, is inaugurating a whole new time frame in which the Lord's enemies are defeated. Even common things become holy to the Lord. All right. Hard stop on time. All right, let me, uh, let me try to wind it down this way. This is a quick comparison to, to Genesis. So in Genesis, the, the words, remember how the Bible begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation ends with a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. In Genesis, God calls into being the sun, moon, and stars. In Revelation, we're told there'll be no more light, no need of light of lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God will give him light. In Genesis, the paradise is created as a garden, watered by a river, stocked by a tree of life. The best blessing is the presence of the Lord God himself. In Revelation, the paradise is recreated, complete with the river, the water of life. On each side of the river is a tree of life. So the idea is that in Genesis 1-2, to in Zechariah 14, and in Revelation, the last two chapters, our world's future is thoroughly redemptive and transformational. At that point on that day, the world will no longer bear its scars and wounds, our brokenness, but instead become so utterly soaked in the presence of the Lord God himself that the world be transfigured into something else, glorious and radiant and holy. And until then, all those who are in Christ become a community that already now belong to the future. We are citizens of heaven.
So we point the world to Jesus as we keep pointing ourselves to him. We wait for his arrival. We lift up our eyes. We long for his presence, and we cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So as I said at the top of your handout there, I'll read again. When we're in discouraging circumstances, you know, such as living in crumbling societies, God melts our discouragement by calling us to lift our eyes to see his coming kingdom. Lift up your eyes above the turmoil. The message of Zechariah. Next uh, two weeks, Lord willing, we'll do uh, Malachi. So let's pray. Our Father, how are we encouraged by your word, encouraged by the prophecies 